What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Consciousness Explorers podcast, the pod that's all about exploring mind, body, consciousness, all sorts of fun stuff. We are your hosts. I'm Tasha. And I am Jeff. And we're super stoked to have you along for the ride today. So today we have on Philip Shepard, who wrote two books, Radical Wholeness, and then a book called New Self, New World. He's started out as an actor and got really into what was happening in his body, I guess you could say, when he was genuinely present. And that led to a whole ton of thinking about this. And I actually met Philip about over 10 years ago. We lived on Toronto Island for a year at the same time. So we'd go for these walks. And, and since we had those conversations, he's now put together a whole system of thinking about this called the Embodied Present Process. So we got him to guide us in a practice Around that, his actorness comes out. You know, it's sort of like you're inside a theater program during the meditation. That's kind of what I found. And he's incredibly articulate about the body. And it was a great conversation. I loved it. His voice is like next level amazing. And the meditation just very, very quickly cut past all of the cogitating. I dropped right into some very good embodiment. Right. And that was a big theme in this whole thing. This whole really hour is about what it actually means to drop out of your head into your body. So I hope you enjoy it. Philip, welcome to the Consciousness Explorers podcast. Welcome. Such a pleasure to be here with you both. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for coming on today. I'm so excited to get into the embodiment practice. So do you want to give us a brief preview of what we're getting into today? Wouldn't I love to? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a practice I'd like to share with you that sort of addresses two of my concerns. One of them is the way we've defined human intelligence, which I find insulting. You know, human intelligence, well, that's the ability to reason in an abstract fashion. For me, that's a valid part of our intelligence, but it's one wavelength in a massive spectrum. And when I go to name that spectrum, I think the foundation of our intelligence is sensitivity whether that's sensitivity to a child's tears or to the sound of rain or birdsong or color or arithmetic relationship, whatever it might be, any sensitivity is a form of intelligence. Now, the thing about a sensitivity is that it has to be reactive. So if the retina didn't react, we wouldn't see. Then that reactivity has to be grounded in order to become coherent. So for me, the quality of our intelligence, the true quality of it, is the quality of grounded sensitivity. And those, both those poles are necessary. So this practice is sort of a segue that explores both of those realms, both what I feel as the true nature of my intelligence and that quality of bringing the body's energy into coherence. That's really well said, and it'll be interesting to explore with you after the practice what you mean by coherence. Uh, but first, let's get sensitive and energized, I suppose, or however you would describe where this practice is going to take us. Yeah, um, I would invite you to begin by just bringing your awareness to the breath. Feel the breath as gently as you can. So there's a question for you. How gently 
Can you feel the stirrings of the breath within your body? And then begin to understand that the body is 65% water. It is a fluid medium. And as the body releases to the in-breath and releases to the out-breath, the breath itself calls forth the body's fluidity. So you begin to feel the breath as a wave. And the more deeply you can release the body to the breath, the more clearly it will call forth the body's fluidity. So if you can, allow your awareness to descend through the body, down through the trunk, down through the pelvic bowl, and come to rest on the pelvic floor. And the pelvic floor is a diaphragm in the body. It releases to the in-breath with the thoracic diaphragm and releases to the out-breath. And you can begin to feel if you slightly exaggerate the out-breath, you'll possibly feel the pelvic floor engage to support the out-breath. And at the end of that slightly exaggerated out-breath, the pelvic floor can just release to the in-breath. It just lets go. And as the pelvic floor releases to the in-breath, you can feel an invitation to the whole of the body to participate in that release. So there's this wave of release through the body. And similarly, at the end of the in-breath, as the body releases to the out-breath, the pelvic floor initiates that release and the body is invited to participate. And as we release the body to the out-breath, that release has the quality of a sigh. So you can feel every cell in the body gently releasing to the out-breath, and you begin to feel the breath itself as a wave through the body. And see if you can feel that wave descending through the fluidity of the legs, right down to the soles of the feet. And that wave rises up through the body to the top of the head. And the wave is, is a wave of the in-breath filling and the out-breath releasing. And similarly, that wave travels down through the arms to the fingertips. And you feel it like the wave of an ocean traveling through the arm and then releasing back. And as you release the body to the breath wave, as you release the body to its inherent fluidity, you begin to feel the body's energy in a different way. And just gently bring your awareness to the body's energy. And it's a varied energy. There are so many different ways in which it shows up. So there may be a little fuzzball of anxiety somewhere within your being. And if that's the case, just bring your awareness to it without any expectation, without wanting it in any way to be different. Just honor 
that energy by feeling it as it is, meet it as it is, and welcome it. And bring your awareness to the energy of the legs, those conduits to the earth. And just allow that energy to show up as it will. And allow yourself to welcome it without any expectation, without any idea of how it should feel. And you may notice running through the cells of your body a little jitteriness, the, the jitteriness that is trained into us, the jitteriness of expectation, when next, how next, what next. And again, if you feel that energy there, just gently notice it. Acknowledge it, feel it without in any way asking it to be different from what it is. And I'd invite you to bring your awareness to the energy of your thoughts. So, not the thoughts themselves, but notice that behind those thoughts is the engine that drives them. And just see if you can feel that energy driving your thoughts. And for me, it's a little like looking behind the curtain to discover the Wizard of Oz. And locate that energy for yourself as specifically as you can. And feel it and welcome it. And bring your awareness to the whole of your being and all the energy within it, in all its diversity, in all its specificity, the currents of energy, the held energy. And it's a little like opening your eyes on a star field at night. You feel it alive within your being. And then as gently as you can, give that energy permission to begin to melt. And you give it that permission and you feel that energy start to soften and melt. And as it does, it begins to trickle down inside the body like water through pebbles. And you feel it melting in the head, in the torso, in the legs, trickling down in a gentle cascade that descends. And you feel it inside the body, trickling down, and the first little trickle arrives on the soles of your feet. And you feel that happen, and the energy pools inside your feet. And as it continues to descend, those pools in response grow. They begin to rise inside the legs like a tide. And still you're noticing any little held bits of energy and giving them your love and feeling them melt under the warmth of its influence. And as they do, they trickle down inside in this gentle wash of sensation. And that energy descends, and as it does, the fluid energy in the legs rises up in response, eventually to the pelvic floor. And still you're noticing little stuck bits of energy, giving them your unconditional acceptance, giving them your love, 
feeling them melt and trickle down, descending to meet that fluid energy rising eventually to the top of the pelvic bowl. And as the last few trickles descend and release through the torso, notice how much spaciousness there is above the pelvic bowl. And just gently notice if there are any little holdouts, any little places of consolidated energy that have resisted the melting, and just feel them, welcome them, offer them love, and see if they too can yield and melt and descend. And notice how much space there is within the torso, above the pelvic bowl. And notice how much groundedness there is in the pelvic bowl and the legs as that fluid energy comes to rest. And then discover for yourself how deeply you can allow that energy to come to rest. What is the risk for you in letting that energy come completely to rest. And allow it to rest and feel the weight of it on the soles of your feet. And allow it to come more deeply to rest and feel it join the earth. and allow it to come more deeply to rest still and feel it come to rest in the present. And the more deeply it comes to rest in the present, the more you may have the sense of being held by the present. And notice this seeming paradox within the body, that groundedness, that rest, that rootedness from the pelvic bowl down, and how it feels to allow yourself to come completely to rest on the earth. And notice above that, the spaciousness of the body. And notice how much room there is within the body for all the sounds of the world around you. There's nothing to resist them. They float into and through you. And if you wish, allow your eyes to open and notice the sights of the world and how much room there is within you 
for the sights of the world around you to be felt. They too register in that spaciousness. There's room enough for all the world within you. And meanwhile, there is that groundedness below connecting you with the earth. And there within your being is one way in which grounded sensitivity shows up. It is an experience of your true intelligence, completely at rest on the earth in the present and completely available to all the living phenomena that surround you. So rest for a moment within that marriage, that complementary union of opposites, and notice the interplay between them, and notice the richness of the world in which you rest. And that brings this practice to a close. But I hope even as it formally ends, you will cherish it and carry it forward in some way. Dude. <laughs> that was so awesome. I felt like I had National Geographic narrator narrating my inner experience. I was going to say, <laughs> your voice is incredible. Oh my gosh. That alone, like even if you weren't even talking any, you know, coherent sentences would have put me quite into a meditative trance. Well, we'll have to draw on that because it, your history is as an actor, Philip. So I'm really curious of drawing you out a little bit on how that experience informed the direction of your ideas. But that, thank you for the practice. Oh, you're most welcome. This was such a beautiful practice. Maybe one of the, my own personal strongest reactions to a meditation that I've done in quite a while. You know, this this invitation to just utterly release and kind of relax to the wave-like quality of everything going on in my body. And I think it really had to do with your voice. Your voice carries so much confidence and weight in it that it gave me permission. I was like, it, it felt very much like, okay, this is a space in which you can just totally relinquish. And so that was quite impactful for me. And I, you know, as we're doing it, as we're going forth and the energy is kind of moving all over the body and taking note of that, I was just reminded of something that one of my other teachers says all the time, Bob Thurman. He's like, I don't know why we call ourselves human beings. We're not human beings. We're field beings. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that so much because it's like, you know, this all the stuff going on in the field of awareness and you're bringing attention to all this movement. And it was so easy to tap into that primal feeling of fluctuations in the field, you know, rather than this solid beingness in a way that totally for me just was like completely unmediated by concepts. You know, I wasn't like, this is the feeling of emptiness. You know, this is the feeling of interconnectivity. It was just like completely unmediated that feeling. And I also felt that the way that you talk is so poetic and I really feel like poetry does that as well. Like poetry is that thing that kind of skirts around language and brings you into an unmediated kind of experience of that full interconnectivity. So those two things paired together, just the feeling of energy in the body and 
the poetry of the guided meditation was just like, I just dropped right in. It was really awesome. That's just lovely to hear. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my report. I loved it. Nice. Well, I also really like the invitation to start the sensitivity exercise by noticing that the second diaphragm, as you called it, which I've heard before, kind of in the pelvis, that actually there's a release always happening somewhere. That, of course, we always think of the release as the out-breath, and there is definitely a, the diaphragm relaxes there. But on the in-breath, there's a relaxation of that pelvic floor, which is that other the other diaphragm, I guess. So you really did, I kind of really tuned into that sense of just the two waves. And then from there, it was very skillfully done. It just led me in just exactly what you were intending to that wave-like feeling through the whole body. So very much was in that and, you know, was kind of following along or with that sort of sensitivity. There were a few points where I kind of was like, where am I again? Like I, <laughs> I kind of lost, I didn't know what I was paying attention to anymore. And and particularly for me around this idea of the energy coming to rest, I was like, what's resting? <laughs> what is rest? My energy does not seem like it's resting. I mean, I was comfortable, but it was swirling and there was buzzy feelings here and there. And I could feel my legs and I, could feel, and I didn't necessarily feel more groundedness below and more space above, although I have felt that on occasion before. So I was just tracking what was happening. And um, that's my report. Yeah, there are a couple of things I love in that. One is that sense that we release the body to the in-breath is really, really important to me. Um, we override the body's intelligence and tell it what to do. And we're so culturally imprinted that here's the English language with perhaps more words in its vocabulary than any other, and we don't have a word for releasing the body to the in-breath. We have sigh for releasing the body to the out-breath, but not the other way around. And I, you know, we've got this cultural imperative to establish and fortify a boundary that separates me from the world. And that shows up in the way we name our sense organs, in the way we design our buildings in everything. And so, you know, it's one thing to allow yourself to transgress that boundary and go into the world. It's another thing to what? Just release to the world, to, to let it come into me. My goodness, I can't do that. That might not be safe. And so I, you know, it, it's a sort of deep cultural patterning that affects the very way we take into our body the exhalations of forests that keep us alive. Mm -hmm. And that reminds me also of, you know, something I was thinking during the meditation, which is Culturally, our idea of strength or, or like courage is a hardening, mm. whereas really it takes courage to relax, like to release and to allow, you know, it's a, a trusting that takes courage. Yeah, I studied uh, classical Japanese no theater as a teenager, and there's a great saying by Zami Motokyo, the founder of no theater, which dates from the 1200s. It's an ancient form of theater. And, and the saying is... It is a mistake to understand a lack of gentleness as strength. Mm. I just love that. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's a mistake our culture makes very often. So 
So this embodiment thing, Philip, here that we're doing. Like, <laughs> so I mean, so what's this really all about? So we're 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 reorienting away from just the tyranny of the thinking mind into this larger sensitivity of a living, breathing, connected body. What? Where does this lead? You know, when you work with people, presumably they come to your workshops and they're kind of like these, what was D.H. Lawrence, these tight clanking little wills. I think that was how he described <laughs> Americans. <laughs> like these, they're in their head, chunk, 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 you know, moving around like little robots. That's certainly how I am a lot of the time. <laughs> and then they, you know, two days later, you spit them out of the workshop and they're like, what are, what are they doing? What now? <laughs> like, what, 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 ha what do you see happen in them? And how does one, what is the sort of deep, I know it's a huge question, but the, the value, the transformative effect, the meaning of connecting in this way, how, what it does to us over time, why it's important. Yeah. Okay. A simple question to see if I can give a simple answer. Um, you, you know, as a culture, we live in our heads. We're told that the head should take charge and be in charge. We're told that we can outthink your situation and strategize and win that way. And the head is not home. And the head is this pole of intelligence that that yearns, I think, to work in tandem, in partnership with the intelligence of the body. And, you know, there, there are so many statistics that tell us that the body processes a billion times, more than a billion times, more information than we can be consciously aware of. And so there is this teeming field of intelligence in the body that does not stand separate from the world around us. It is our bridge to the mindful present. And as long as we remain devoted to the intelligence in the head, that other intelligence of the body is fragmented and shattered and in pieces. And so, you know, in our culture, there's the heart and we recognize the feeling of the heart and romance, but we're in a binary mode of operation where we can be analytical and think with the head, or we can sort of be romantic and feel from the heart, but they don't really go together. It's one or the other. And you can have a gut instinct, but how does that go together with the intelligence of the legs? And so we have compartmentalized and bulwarked our intelligences against each other. And for me, I mean, you're coming, coming back to your original question, what is embodiment? Why does it matter? Embodiment is a state in which the whole of your intelligence is brought into coherence. And I, my metaphor for that is a murmuration of starlings. And I don't know if you've seen these. I mean, if you haven't, check it out on YouTube, murmuration of starlings. You get like up to a quarter of a million birds that, that fly at dusk. And it's like this living organism that elongates and uplifts and swirls. And, and it's like watching this lava lamp in the sky. Almost. <laughs> but, but no starling is in charge. Each starling has its own intelligence that is attuning it to the field of the murmuration. And Within ourselves, you know, there is the murmuration of our being that is at war with itself. And we can bring that energy, that intelligence into coherence, not as a phenomenon that is organized within our skin, but as a phenomenon that is being organized by the world around us. 
So if I can riff on that just for another second, we are an obsessed culture. And I name that obsession as the obsession with organizing. And there is nothing we don't organize. We organize our thoughts. We organize our emotions. We organize our responses to the world and to other people. I mean, you're already got a smile on your face when you're, you know, see someone you know before your being has had a chance to feel their presence and genuinely respond. And we organize our daytimers. We, we organize everything. And, and there's a place for organization, certainly. But when it becomes an obsession, it becomes, for me, impossible to be present because that state of being present is a state in which I feel myself being organized by the present. And if I've superseded that with my own ham-fisted organization, I will never feel that. I'm not susceptible to it. Hmm. And of course, from that place, all the contemplative goodies, I guess you could say, they bear fruit, the sense of intimacy with the world, a sense of ease in the body, of kind of peace in the heart, of connection to each other, a sense of being complete or integrated, of not living from lack. All of those things kind of emerge from this place of, I guess, greater synthesis or coherence as you're describing it. Yeah. And even, even a sense, if I can say it, a sense of relief of that burden of having to get it all right. And instead <laughs> you just drop in and attune and you are in a sense carried, not passively, you know, it's a, it's a partnership, but it's participatory in the same way that a surfer riding a wave into shore doesn't think he's in charge of the wave, but my gosh, he can attune to it. Mm. Yeah. I think for me, that was my, experience during the meditation, it kind of manifested as, you know, like goosebumps or tingling or like very alive. But really, I think it was that quality is always available. It's just constantly being throttled and controlled. And so as soon as you give permission to let go, then it does what it naturally would do, which is, you know, blissful flow. Yeah, totally. You know, it reminds me of, I was just speaking to a friend the other day, a, a good friend of mine, and she's a fan of many kinds of meditation techniques and breathing techniques and yoga techniques and martial art techniques and, and really loves them all, but is really lives in an integrated way with them. And and she was sort of reminding me, we were, I was saying, oh, you know, this is this is so good for this or this is good for this. And, and I, you kind of get into the zone of you forget that you are meditation. <laughs> you know, it's like you are the thing. You know, it's like you don't need any these things are just they're like what she would call them wayfinders. They're just they're they're ways to bring us home, but we're already home. Like we're all we already have a body. It's right here. And you can get into this sense where the mind has this idea of a lack. It's got to do this thing to get to where it already is. <laughs> and so I, I, that's one of the things that's so beautiful about this is it's just this very it's it naturalizes the fact that home is already right here. And helps us kind of notice that. Yeah. And every part of the work I do is, you know, to the best of my ability, an attempt to help people just come back to their true nature. I mean, we are fluid beings and we forget that. We consolidate our bodies and our thoughts and we are held by the present at every moment, whether we realize it or not. We are in constant interchange with the present. And, and so just how to resensitize 
to what is there, to the to the thrum of the present. And you know, it's it's as you say, Jeff, we're there. We are in wholeness. I mean, how could you escape wholeness? Everything affects everything else. Everything leans on everything, depends on everything. It, it, there's no extracting the self from the field of wholeness, but we can desensitize ourselves to wholeness. And as a culture, you know, we we deliberately do that to the point where I, I think we are whole blind as a culture. It's interesting that um, it, there are so many paths to resensitizing, you know, and so I'm curious how acting brought you there. Like that's a path you don't often think about as a kind of contemplative path. And yet that's where you began. And when I think of it, I can see it kind of makes sense how, you know, this is what I want to hear from you. The, the, the way in which acting forces you to be in a scene in the present in your body can be a way into this insight. And was that, was it that way for you or? It was huge. It is impossible to overstate what that journey was for me. And there's so many, so many aspects of it. I mean, you understand as an actor that the purpose of technique is just to clear away an obstruction. You know, the body is bound with tensions that prevent the body from releasing as a whole to the breath and releasing the breath from the whole. Um, and so you confront those obstructions. Once they've been cleared, there's no need for the technique. And every practice, every exercise an actor undertakes is just another way of exploring how to be present. That's what it's all about. And there's this tendency, I mean, you know, you sit in the audience and you watch a performance and you think, it's easy enough to mistake what you're seeing for a, a display of the actor's self-organizing. But as an actor, you realize very quickly that self-organizing doesn't work because you're not part of the scene. You're standing apart from it. And so you are nourished by and carried by the other actors, the world, the life of the world in which you're embedded. And as an actor, groundedness is crucial. And I, I don't see much difference between groundedness and presence and wholeness. It's this continuum that joins you to a much larger field, a much larger context. And I, I remember as an actor trying to get it right, trying to figure out what does that mean to get this role right? How am I going to do that? And holding on to various commands from above and it, none of it works. <laughs> I mean, it just doesn't. <laughs> and so you run up against that. Uh, you, you don't just run up against that, like in your own living room, you run up against that in front of an audience of 50 people. <laughs> and, and, you know, so, so the necessity to come to terms with it is, is sort of that much keener. And, and there, you know, acting is such a surrender to this life, to, to the body of this character. I mean, the body, you know, everyone has a, has such a different body that attunes differently to the world and feels every aspect of it in its own particular way. And, and so the more I am pulled by different roles into different bodies, the more freedom my own body has in opening to the world without those, you know, we were taught as a culture to know who you are, and it's such a prison 
and uh, you know I, I really think we face a choice that you can be who you know you are or you can be present Absolutely. but you can't have it both <laughs> ways yeah. right so there's a culture i write about in in radical wholeness the anglo eve culture and anthropologists describe them in in really stunning terms in this culture they have a radical indeterminacy of selfhood and i you know radical indeterminacy of self, you know that's a nightmare to us <laughs> but the reality of it is we don't hold on to who we are we don't know who we are within the the boundary of our skins you discover who you are as you come into felt relationship with the world around you as you you know stand before a tree and feel its presence it illuminates you in a particular way, just as a child playing on the sidewalk, if you truly feel that child, you're illuminated in a particular way. So the more deeply you come into felt relationship with the world, the more deeply you are illuminated who you are. And that requires that it's a changeability that requires a radical indeterminacy of the self so that the actor's soul longs for transformation and once you give in to that call as an actor and you you, you know swim in it like a like a hippo in the in the river and you you know that that call is always there the world is always calling you into newness if only you can give the little surrender that enables it yeah that's beautiful <laughs> And something that that reminds me of, too, is I think in the contemplative tradition, there's a lot of emphasis put on compassion, you know, and being compassionate and feeling compassion for others. And there's the idea that you kind of fake it till you make it, like practice compassion until it permeates your body and you kind of get it on a cellular level. And, you know, what you're talking about, this kind of coming into relation with the world around you and with others around you through this embodiment, it's kind of like you don't need to worry about being compassionate. The compassion flows from the fact that you feel utterly connected, that there's, you know, this wave-like nature between you and, you know, the child outside or the tree or all these things that you're you're mentioning. It's the, the compassion for others. It's not even compassion. It's just almost like a, a no-brainer. It's like, of course, there it is. It's so astute. And the way I think of it, Tasha, is that in our culture, we are a top-down culture. And so... You know, we want to grasp onto these ideals, and they're gorgeous ideals like compassion and truthfulness mm -hmm. and courage, whatever it may be. But they're yes, abstract. <laughs> but well, what it becomes, I mean, here's the risk. It's not that it necessarily happens, but the risk is you go into a situation, you say, oh, yes, I should be compassionate here. Well, the <laughs> brain in the head knows what that looks like, knows what that feels like, and brings the rest of you along. And you know, the alternative to that for me is a surrender to wholeness, how to drop into the body, drop into the whole of your intelligence, drop and dilate into the present. And when I am in that place of wholeness, I mean, how could I be other than compassionate? How could I speak words I knew not to be true? It's just, it becomes untenable. But it's not a top-down. It's a living connection. It's a guidance. You make me think of this issue about around why the fruits of practice don't permeate the whole of our lives sometimes. And we could take the example of acting. 
it could be that the practice of acting is a practice and I agree with you of embodiment of being in the present, like great actors do that. But then the question in my mind is, are all great actors basically enlightened in some way? Because what I see is that somebody in their specialized domain and their sort of silo, so on the stage, or if you're a brilliant psychotherapist, like when you're in relationship with a client, or if you're a meditator, you really nail it on the cushion. Like there are these domains of speciality where you're really in that place. But then the challenge is taking it out into the rest of your life. And there's some kind of disconnect that happens there. There's some reason why there are all kinds of super egoic <laughs> actors <laughs> who have totally, you know, who just seem more lost and clueless than, you know, like, just, or as, as lost and clueless as the rest of us, you know, and yet they may have this radical practice of radical presence within when they're when the camera's on them. So first of all, you may not um, agree with that model that I just presented. But if you do, how do you make the <laughs> jump from the place where the practice really works within the silo to the rest of your life? Yeah, first of all, I completely agree. Um, <laughs> just uh, absolutely. And, and that, you know, that specialized application, for me, the transition into your life highlights in a way the difference between principles and rules. You know, rules are, rules limit uh, rules organize, rules stop, you know, you acquiesce in a rule. A principle is completely different. A principle begins something. A principle is the illumination of a relationship that enables you to take a few steps in exploring it. So there are principles in acting. You know, there's the principle of receptivity. I remember the the very first um, large film shoot I had a major role in, um, I was cast late. Like, I think I was cast on a Wednesday and, and came in Thursday and did wardrobe. And Saturday morning, we shot the first scene. And was it Magneto? <laughs> oh, no, it wasn't. <laughs> no, it was, a, it was a great film called Strange Justice about the Clarence Thomas affair. And, you know, I was sort of thrown into this and it was just the receptivity. Don't do anything, just receive. And here's the, here's the thing, you know, we're, we're so biased in our culture to do and do and do. And when we speak, we tend to be in presentation mode. It begins in infancy. It begins with that craving of an infant, deeper than any craving it has, to be seen, to be accepted, to be loved. And I think most infants learn very quickly that the whole of their being is just not acceptable. So then they moderate their being in a way that will win that hug, that nod of approval that they that they so yearn for. And we go through life presenting ourselves. The energy goes into the face. We sort of lose the body and it becomes impossible to be present. And I see a real affinity between presence and receptivity. And I think presence is a, such a charged term in our culture. If you say to someone, just be present, they will start organizing themselves into what <laughs> they imagine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you say to someone, just receive, well, then what does that mean? Just receive without needing to do anything about it, to just feel and attune and sensitize. And there you are, you're present. And so, you know, that's just one principle that 
as a rule, it's of no use to you, you know, beyond the stage and, and will possibly impair your performance. But as a principle, wow, can I walk down the street in a state of receptivity? Can I wash the dishes in a state of receptivity? And there it is. It becomes this whole playground for exploration. And I think motivation has a, plays a big part of it. You know, Jeff, to your question, when you're, when you're thinking, you know, actors can drop in the way that Philip is talking about, but how come that sometimes doesn't get off the stage or doesn't come off the cushion? And my thought was, your motivation is, I'm here to do this role and I want to do this role really well. You know, so you're kind of recruiting all the skills that you have, which one of them might be dropping in and you can drop in quite sincerely. And then as you're going about your life, the goal isn't to like be a great actor. Now you're dealing with whatever, being a husband, being a wife, uh, being a, a friend. And because the goal shifted, maybe you're, you're drawing on a different toolkit without realizing that toolkit could come along, you know? That's a great point. Yeah, I um, I was also, like in terms of acting, I was really blessed because I, as a teenager, I studied classical Japanese no theater in Japan. And in the West, in theater, what's important sort of happens from the waist up and you get the facial expressions and the arms waving and the legs. I mean, what do the legs do? They move you to the mantle so you can pick up your wine glass and move back to the chair. You know, and, and it's the opposite in no theater. The power of the performance, everything is there in the legs in that connected way. And, and of course, the Japanese have this concept of hara, which is that belly intelligence that informs everything. And that's what first drew me to no theater was... You know, I, I saw my first play, no play in Montreal, actually. went. I heard there was a no play in Montreal, and I went on a Greyhound bus at the age of 17 to see it. Um, and I had never in my life witnessed such a thing. It shook me to my core, and I did not understand how it had had that effect on me. But I'd never, I'd never in my life seen a head turn and look from that place within the body, or I've never seen an arm raise from that hara-centered intelligence within the body. And, and the, you know, the presence, the grace of that, I think, I think, again, grace is a misunderstood concept. We think it's something we manufacture. And I think instead, grace is the resolution of all the vectors that are present. So when an actor is fully present and moving the arm, the arm reveals the present in which we are all situated at the moment. So we all <laughs> experience the present vividly through that simple gesture. Absolutely. You know, it's really, that's a dramatic example, I think, of what you were saying of the difference between presenting and being in presence. But what it also points to is that you can be in presence and really be in presence and then really, <laughs> really be in presence. Like there's something about that dude on the stage that no actor and the way he was or she was, that was, it's not just like, oh yeah, we can make this little orientation and then we can all be like that. This is a practice. And the more you practice it, the deeper it gets, the more. So this is something that I would find interesting about. It's kind of like the paradox of the deep end. Simultaneously, this thing, our life, our being, our presence, it's right here. And at the same time, it just gets deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. Like it's on a kind of continuum. And that's, you know, 
how can that be? But it does seem to be that way because you you have that experience when you're with old school teachers and martial artists who've been at it a long time and old school Zen masters. And it's right there. Yeah. And the way the way I think of it is that wholeness, you know, it's like a pole star that that helps sailors navigate. It orients them, but they never they never get to the star. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, totally. and and you know, you you never yeah, wake yeah, up. It's a direction. One, yeah. And you never wake up yeah. one morning and say, ah, finally I'm whole. What's next? It is <laughs> absolutely you know, it's, it, <laughs> Can you imagine <laughs> that done. <laughs> yeah, really. No, it's a surrender, a surrender, a surrender. And it is bottomless because there are so many sensitivities in the human body. And very often those sensitivities only come to the fore when our life depends on it. So, you know, I think of the, there's a blind kid who learned to echolocate so he can ride down the street and he's clicking and, and seeing through echolocation, the, the street and the, the fire hydrants and everything else. And there are, you know, Aboriginal cultures, hunter gatherers, and the plants speak to them because their lives depend on that. And when I was a teenager, I went on my bicycle through Europe and the Middle East and India and Japan and slept outside almost everywhere. And my life depended on finding a place where I could do that safely. And every single night, you know, it was this sense of just feeling, just attuning. And it's like my bike was turned this way and then that way. And then I get off and walk around here. And there was the place. It was, mm. it was such a <laughs> tangible sense of being guided by the present. And it's something that I've never forgotten. You were like a sleep dowser. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's how it felt exactly. For good crash pads. Yeah. I needed you when I was that's looking cool. for an apartment in Montreal all those years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's so oh. cool. That's a beautiful story. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, is there anything that you know we didn't touch on that feels important to you to talk about? Anything about how to maintain or continue to deepen this practice? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things come to mind. One is I think the greatest challenge that we face is trusting what the body knows to begin to feel it. And the problem is we begin to feel it from our heads and, and we think we're there and we think listening to the body is embodiment. But, you know, if you're listening to the body, you're operating according to a metaphor that tells you there's a wall separating you from the body. And the best you can do is to put your ear to it, to listen to what's happening on the other side. So that sense of descent, it's like the journey Orpheus made to reunite with Eurydice down into the underworld. That's in a sense the journey that we need to take. And what we are recovering, as I understand it, is the female pole of our intelligence. I really feel the pelvic bowl as this sort of chalice in which this energy, this intelligence resides, that is the complementary opposite of that abstracting, brilliant intelligence in the head. And to bring them together is to overcome what I feel is the primary wound in our culture, which is the separation 
of our thinking from our being. We've, we've cordoned them off from each other. And there's my being and there's my thinking. And my thinking, I've, I've learned after 12 years of public school that I can think more clearly by segregating the intelligence in my head and sort of dulling myself to the noise below the neck. And then I can sort it out. And the division between thinking and being is an artifice that is imposed on us. I feel every thought in my body. The thinking resonates through my body and clarifies there. And my words arise from that thrumming. You know, it's like a, almost like an echo chamber that with each echo, what is being said, what is being felt is clarified more and more. You just gave the ultimate pointing out instruction, Philip. Yeah, that's can exactly what I was feel, thinking. <laughs> can you feel your thinking? Yes. <laughs> that's yes. the bridge yeah. right there. Yeah. And then, the, you know, the, the other side to that is, is can you recognize every sensation in the body as a form of thinking? And then they come yeah. together. And then there is your being. And you can think with the whole of your being. And, and the world longs for that from you. It wants you to be present in that way. Yeah. It's the ultimate yogic practice. You know, that the way you talk about bridging into, you know, from the silo into life, every single practice, I encourage people to try it when you're washing dishes or try it when you're walking down the aisle of a grocery store because we go on automatic and it's only when you risk interrupting those patterns that another choice becomes available. You inspired me to write a meditation called Feel Your Thinking. <laughs> <laughs> think, and, then, and then, you know, think the body or whatever it is, because it's just yeah. such a beautiful way to kind of close that gap. Um, yeah. Uh, so they can find you where can our listeners find you, or if they wanted to do more, they want to see a YouTube clip or take a class or... Oh, yeah, I'd, I'd love all of that. Um, I have a website that is called embodiedpresent.com. It's all there on the website, and I'd love people to check that out or, or check out either of my books. Radical Wholeness is my second book, but it's the one I suggest people start with. And what you refer to as the tome, Jeff, New Self, New World. <laughs> and both books are, are available as audiobooks. I, I had the pleasure of recording them myself, so you You'd be listening to my voice speak my words. Wonderful. Wow, Philip, thank you. What a pleasure. Yeah, this was definitely my favorite hour of the day, that's for sure. It was like Lovely. a hectic day. And, <laughs> and then just to come home to this was wonderful. It's been such a pleasure being with you both. Thanks for tuning in to the Consciousness Explorers podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like this episode, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. See you next week for a whole new adventure.